Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday, the 22nd of November, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We have some more terrible abuse of the trot sect mania today, as we eventually finish Chapter 8, Political Consciousness. Hail to the death of the chapter which never ends. If you'd like to keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang gang? From $5 a month or $1 an episode, you get access to the special Patreon-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the Reading Group series, and other cool stuff too. We're closing in on the magic 100 patrons, which means we'll soon be producing a second patron-only podcast every month. If you think money is evil, it is. You could also help me producing and editing the show. Hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if this is your non-single-use bag. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do it on the YouTube channel. Okay, to the discussion. Uh, right, who wants to read the next bit? Uh, Ka- yeah, let's put Puya last. Puya reserved the last. <laughs> Puya? Oh, no. Yeah. So we're here at uh, two, three, many internationals. This uh, shit gets good. This shit gets good. <laughs> in the world between the opening of the Cold War in 1948 and the beginning of the open political crisis of the USSR in the 1980s, official communism appeared to be a strategic way forward for the global working class and apolitical trade unionism and social democratic coalitionism appeared to be a strategic way forward for the working class in the imperialist countries. Although Comintern had been wound up in 1943, the official communists had a form of international, the common form. The CPSU had discovered that a consultative international secured freedom from accountability as effectively as an open bureaucratic dictatorship and with fewer overhead costs. This situation posed for the Trotskyists the question, what was their international for? In 1953, they split between the majority Pavloite advocates of a tactic of large-scale fraction work in the communist parties and their anti-Pavloite opponents who insisted on building parties organizationally separate from the official communists among the milieu of the French socialists, British Bevanites, and Rooseveltian Democratic or Democrat trade unionists. The split was characterized by bureaucratic centralism on both sides, as first the Inter- International Executive Committee expelled the majority of the French section and then the U.S. SWP and British section expelled minorities and their organizations that supported the Pavloite international majority. The minority formed an international committee, but turned out to be unable to produce anything more than the occasional liaison meetings between the French, British, and U.S. full-timers. In due course, the national components went their separate ways, with the usual round of expulsions. Each created an openly bureaucratic centralist Trotten turn or a formally consultative Trotten form with its own party in the role of the CPSU. This was the legacy of Comintern's chain of revolution as idea and the leading role of the Comintern of the most advanced party, with the American, British, and French each imagining that they were the most advanced. The Pavloites after 1960, the Mandalites, did a little better. 
they preserve the forms of an international organization with center leadership, international congresses and press, and a degree of internal democracy in their organizations. In the early 1970s, they even began to develop continental perspectives and centers and horizontal relations between sections. But if you ask them what their international was for, the only answer they could give was to be a center where the international experiences of the mass movement and of the revolution are progressively assimilated. At the end of the day, this is to say no more than the fourth international must exist because it must. Their international had become the Mandalite sectarian shibboleth, which distinguished them from their Trotskyist competitors in individual countries. The insistence of the Mandalites that no one could be a Trotskyist without the Fourth International pressed the national groups, even quite large ones, such as the French Lutte Ouvrière and the British Militant and SWP, to create their own. The 1953 split and all the more the 1971 split between the British and French anti-Pavloites had the effect of legitimizing multiple internationals around Trotskyists. At this point, we have arrived at today's world of Trotskyist set sect internationals, although the full Baroque elaboration was not to arrive until the 1980s. The Trotten forms are, like the common form, just as much creatures of bureaucratic centralism as the common turn and the fourth international at its most centralist period. For example, the British SWP's international socialist tendency is not formally democratic centralist, i.e. bureaucratic centralist, but this tendency can nonetheless expel the U.S. International Socialist Organization for supporting a minority faction in Greece in 2003. Rip. <laughs> oh my god. When I first read this, I, I knew he was going to fall on the side of the Pabloites. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just think earlier in uh, the book, he basically expresses like a them as like his favorite trot sect it would make sense right because the split between the pabloites the followers of the greek marxist michel pablo and pablo isn't his real name but i don't know what his real name is and basically they are doing entryism into the communist party versus entryism into the social democratic party yeah it would make sense that he would appreciate the form of trotskyism that's trying to organize within the bigger within the split from social democracy not running back into the arms of social democracy I mean, they sound basically like kind of like McNairis. Yeah. You know, they're trying to build yeah. a, a yep. faction within the larger. Yep. They're also more internationalist, right? Yeah, that's, this is all part of why I wanted to actually get into this, because, you know, how much of this stuff is going to recapitulate, you know, Pabloism, more or less, or Mandalism? I, and I don't know, like, that's sort of like a broader question. I quite like Mandel's mm -hmm. writings. Yeah, he edited a book with uh, Alan Freeman. That's good Marxist economics book. So he's an interesting, like, serious guy. And, uh, you know, as far as, like, trots go, yeah, like, the, that original sort of, I don't know. I guess what he's really saying is that the structure of that stuff, in, in the same way that he appreciates, like, post-Stalin, but pre-Euro-communist, like, official communist party period, like, from that, like, Euro-communist point onward, his organizational allegiances are with these Pabloites, I suppose. I, I guess I would put it that they're doing everything that, you know, alienated intellectuals can do, except that they don't actually have a reason for being. And I, I really wonder how much of this applies to 
what McNair wants to do. I don't know. It would seem like McNair right. is a, a Pabloite. Is that what we're saying? To trying to reform the Communist Party along democratic lines? Well, I mean, mm. it's it's definitely like an improvement on Pabloism to abandon the first four Congresses and Cominternism and all that shit. Yeah. And he said yeah. here that um, also the Pabloites had their own uh, splits and their own expulsions of certain groups, but yeah. It sounds like he likes what the Pavlets were doing before they uh, became too trot for their own good and started splitting and purging and all that. Like that that strategic line of, you know, entering the larger communist party as like a faction and doing entryism into that. Like, I think that's kind of like his bread and butter. And so he wants that, but without the trot baggage, basically. And does this sort of get into the CPGB's like weird non-party party position? Because he is criticizing the Pavlovites on the basis of their organization and its existence became the only reason their organization existed, <laughs> right? Like it just perpetuating the international as like the true embodiment of communist principle was the only reason for that international to exist. I don't know, maybe that sort of avoidance of the party among the CPGB could be related to that problem that he identifies. I don't know. I, I have this, like this drive in me, you know, whenever I see these like mass movements pop up and go down and I realize that, you know, the enemies of mass movements have these cumulative institutions that can build on strategy and kind of do trial and error and, you know, think, mm -hmm. can, can, you know, think historically and kind of collect their experiences it, it, yeah, it strikes me that they're, oh, you know what we need? We need an organization that can collect these experiences, you know, and give them to the masses when they, they, are, they take up struggle, you know? Usually when there is like a sort of mass thing, the organizations that are around kind of like thumb their nose at it and whatever they have to say is not all that useful to them, to the mass movement. Right. I, I, I kind of share this, like, I, I, have a, I have an inner Mandalite, you know, that's like, God, we need... We need that like outpost of, you know, working class experience of the revolutionary heritage. You know, we need that, you know, organization to carry the torch and the flame to the to the new movements. But that's just not really how these things pan out. OK, but so like if we look at the Mandalite Fourth International as McNair presents it and then mm -hmm. compare it to the other internationals, you know, is the problem here that they weren't willing to do what uh, Marx and Engels were willing to do of just disbanding when the time was right to disband uh, <sighs> is the problem that they had this inheritance, this bureaucratic centralist inheritance, and they should have been more like they should have been looser, like the second international. I kind of agree with that because what's interesting about the dissolution of the first international is that it opened up space for, Marx and in a particular angles to develop the kind of strategy we're talking about today, more or less, which I think was uh, overall a positive development. There's a lot that I love about the First National, don't get me wrong, but sometimes if it's not working out, you got to hang up your towel and rethink your strategy. And I think the legacy of bureaucratic centralism that comes from the common turn infects Trotskyism still makes it impossible they, they want to maintain the institution for its own sake is what we're kind of getting at here and i think that's a problem like sometimes you have to like be like okay this isn't working out let's let's hang, let's hang the towel and let's try something different you know 
But you know, right. you, you, you tell that to these like Leninist people, and like, no, comrade, this is the true Leninist revolution is X, Y, and Z, and they can't like get over their uh, hangups on the immortal science, you know. And does that sort of come out of the uh, idea of the party as the true vanguard? I think that's that's part of the inheritance of of what is generally termed bureaucratic centralism. It's kind of like similar to the term Stalinism. That's not what they describe themselves as, but that is what, it is, what a lot of critics call it. I think vanguardism is kind of part and parcel for that general label. Because the first international was not really vanguardist, right? It was an association of quite different tendencies in the name of association. Correct. It was uh, explicitly multi-tenancy, basically until they purged Bakunin. <laughs> but, you know, th that, there's, there's reasons for that, I guess. Yeah. Well, do we want to hit the last section of this? Let's do it. I nominate Puya. What's your Puya's okay. golden voice? Fuck death. Okay. Lord of the Surf. <laughs> oh my god, don't say that in the era talk. Oh like, no, mom. not me. Machine noise expert. Okay. The need for an international is posed because the working class has concrete, immediate, practical international tasks. These are tasks of class solidarity because the bourgeoisie uses national divisions in the working class to defeat strikes, etc. They are also a task of formulating an independent class perspective on world affairs. These were the lessons of a first international. The need for an international is also posed because the working class can really only understand its own strength and become conscious of itself as a class for itself. By becoming conscious of itself as an international class, this was the lesson of a symbolic role of a second international. In the third place, the need for an international is posed because the working class cannot take power in a single country and wait for the proletariat of other countries to come to its aid. This is a fundamental lesson of a degeneration and collapse of a cognitive and the eventual fall of the Soviet socialist countries. It was a lesson that was not learned by the Trotskys. The strategic <laughs> task that this lesson poses for an international is an internationally united struggle of a working class for political power. It should be apparent that the objective political conditions do not yet exist for such a struggle, but they exist for a continental united struggle for political power which fight for continental unification, Communist Party of Europe, a Pan-African Communist Party, and so on. A dynamic towards continental unification of politics is already visible in bourgeois politics, not just in Europe and in the Latin American Chavista Bolivarians. It is even present in utterly deformed and reactionary manner in the Islamist movement in the Middle East. Comintern was not sterilized by the decision to split from the Social Democrats. It was sterilized by bureaucratic centralism. The idea of a chain of national revolutions and the idea of a Comintern as a fan club for Russians. Its failure was about the inability of a Comintern to think of international tasks, except either as immediate civil war, which calls for a general staff, or making the National Communist parties copy the Russians as a road to victory in a single country. The Trotskyist 1933 call for a new international was premature. It was not this premature split that turned their project into a swarm of malignant international sects. Rather, it was their too great faithfulness to the ideas of your orderly Comintern, which committed them to the same bureaucratic centralism and the same idea of a chain of national revolutions. This in turn produced the anti-Pabloite Trotintern and the Trotin forms on the one hand, and a Mandelite empty form of international struggle without political tasks on the other. The struggle for international is a present concrete task of a communist. It is clear, however, that this struggle cannot be carried on by creating yet another micro-international it has to be carried on by fighting on every occasion laws against the bureaucratic centralism and nationalism that go hand in hand with it and for the country chance of the international. 
the global struggle for solidarity in a media class struggle for a symbolic unity of a working class as an international class and the continental struggle for working classes, political unification and political power. Okay. There's one thing that I wanted to comment on. It's in this paragraph. In the third place, the need for an international post because a working player cannot take power in a single country. And this is fundamental lesson in the collapse of a cotton turn and the socialist countries. Well, I, I think he's using kind of like a, I don't know if his methodology is really, I would really agree with here. Like, I don't think, I think you can justify this theoretically without this induction from the, this single, for the single case. Event. Yeah. Like, I think this is like not correct scientific methodology. And also you, you can also just ju- like justify this, you know, theoretically based on economics. I, I like I don't get why he pr- produced explain yourself now Puya. like let's look we've had uh, communist revolutions in Cuba we've mm. had even like a, if you want to look at Chavista those kind of social democratic revolutions we've had communist revolutions in all number of places like China Russia Vietnam Afghanistan you know all these different places Burkina Faso but they were all done pretty much on nationalist lines. Like, well, as a, pretty well, much. It depends now. on how big the country is, I think. Even Russia descended into nationalism. You know, biggest well, goddamn country in the world. Maybe just hope no, for Canada. I mean, like, it's probably like very unlikely. Like, okay, like, imagine, you know, like a European country was going to have a re- revolution. It would be so difficult to maintain that without. Like to maintain efficient production without having international supports, but I mean, you know, if you have a very large area of land, you know, you can like produce. Russia. Yeah, like in Russia, it was much more likely that it would, you know, be able to have a planned economy successfully. You know, there was kind of like left movements in Europe recently, like you know, with Podemos and Syriza. I mean, these are like not really the same type, but. You can't imagine these countries being able to accomplish political tasks that would conflict with the international order solely due to the fact that they can't produce under autarky. I, I think what you're saying is today Russia might be considered a continental block of its own. And the reason why it's different nowadays is it's not totally undeveloped. You think today perhaps Russia could survive. We, I mean, is that the I don't. Point? Th- well, I mean, it's more likely, I think. To bring it back to the book, I think what McNair is trying to say is, well, I think what is true is that it's not just an inference from one case, but it's an inference from every single case of actual existing socialism of the 20th century. You look at any Leninist state and either it is collapsed and is explicitly no longer Leninist, or it has capitulated to the free market in some way. That's true with Cuba. Uh, the DPRK removed any mention of Marxism or Leninism from its constitution. It's true uh, in China and Vietnam. And I'm pretty sure Laos, although I know the least about Laos. But I, I think when you're when you're looking at a sample size of all cases, <laughs> you know. No, I, but I mean, like, uh, I don't think the conclusions follow from the premise. Like, like, he's trying to make a theory out of a fact. Like, you can't make, like. You can. He, theories can't be produced from. <laughs> from facts well i mean sure theories don't come directly from facts but i mean you know we're 
it's kind of a problem of doing like historical wait, no, and social wait, sciences. No, wait, no. Like, is that no. you, you have to like have, so, there is something that suggests itself immediately from the failure of all these cases. And when I, when I talk to just like a normie kind of like STEM Lord, like programmer, there's like, yeah, well, communism failed everywhere. And you know, what's your third variable that explains it? And I go the third international. And they're like, Oh, you know, there's a pretty standard, like causal argument that we can talk about here. And well, I mean, sure, and I, if, if, if sure. you want a broader causal argument, we can talk about attempts at national determination in a Marxist way that weren't even Leninist, like in Chile. You know what I mean? The same problems end up applying. So, well, I think like I think it's very important. You know, I think it's. Well, I was going to say like ten years time, America has a communist revolution. It's wildly successful. Everybody's a commie in America. 10 years time can it survive <laughs> i think there's uh, a point to say it could survive it's got, I mean, nukes, it's, it's got a huge right. landmass. it could survive but that's essentially his point here because he's talking about continental level organizations so you could say but russia if russia was more advanced had more industry now as a capitalist it would it be big enough to you know in 10 whatever it was say if america got to the stage of or if russia got to the stage of a western european country could it survive Probably, but that's his kind of goddamn point. It has to be large enough to survive. Is that not uh, his actual explicit point here? And yeah, that's... but I think, like, I mean, I think the conclusions are correct. He's trying to, uh, you know, it's kind of like in these justificationist terms where it's like, this proves this. And, like, I, I think that the premise, like, it just doesn't work. How would you, imp but I'm, I'm actually really curious about this because, you know, like making social and historical kind of causal argumentation is pretty hard. So do you like what, what, because you agree with the conclusion, do you have like a refined version of the argument that you think follows better? Well, I think I gave it like a little bit ago. Say it Just again. Sp spell it out for us. Labor productivity. It's kind of based on geography. Okay, I mean, I, I, I could see that to an extent, but because we're dealing with the Leninist tradition that honestly, like there's, I don't know, there's this old article by Gramsci where uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was head of the Communist Party at one point, got thrown in prison, then became a liberal kind of uh, critical theory darling. Anyway, besides the point, he wrote a, a tiny article called uh, The Revolution Against Das Kapital, where he conceptualized the Bolsheviks as a sort of revolution against the Marxism of the time. <laughs> and that's pretty much the very important reason that the entire like that the third international has to go through this like without recourse to the argument that you just said because yes a good marxist a good historical materialist that hasn't been inculcated with trying to defend the the you know the russian lunge at at socialism it, that's just going to be fucking obvious and it's kind of even obvious outside of marxism but the Leninist tradition is built on an attempt to outwit that those historical determinations, those like geographical and economic determinations. Like that's the that's the entire hope of the whole thing. And, well, and so I, I I agree with I agree with you. But like, well, I think that uh, Russia doesn't really like go against it because like, hmm. I mean it's a, it's a really big country. <laughs> well, I think the issue in, in Russia is economic, so, is economic uh, development in 1917. It's not so much the size that's the issue. So I, I think would you, agree you, with that too. 
Yeah, I mean, so it, it's yeah. a little bit more than just simply uh, geographical size, but that is an, a very important factor. I, I agree with you on that too. I also think it's more important to think of it as like a prob, you know, like a probability too. Like you know, it's not like it will for sure work out, or it will know, for yeah. sure not but, work I, out. But like yeah. we're not we're not going to make a brownie in motion. <laughs> argument for my glass of water here in front of me flipping over and smashing me in the face <laughs> <laughs> I love brownie motion. <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, like yeah. I, I think we all agree but we're just kind of nitpicking here uh, a little bit on the language was that a fair yeah. point we all think <laughs> maybe guess, it's unlikely well, I guess but I'm just right. a poor, poor little uh, uh, psychologist who's inundated with bad social scientific uh, techniques or whatever yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I don't. I don't really see as much of an issue. High, highly empirical. <laughs> that's. I think that's what psychology is a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're not wrong. But I Hi, think uh, and highly inductivist. Yeah, I, if I, if ever if ever a field needed not to be empirical, it was psychology. I agree with that actually, but I think um, I don't. I don't really see. Look, I I think when you have every single case of Leninism failing, capitulating to capitalism, I don't think it's like a difficult. I don't really see the problem with that argument. I think I, I've sort of digested what Pri was saying here, which is that this proposition that it comes down to single country or not single country is not really a strong argument, right? Because what you should be looking at is the fundamentals uh, that are available to the revolution, not whether it's a single country or not. Because yeah, like the, the sort of boundary definition that we get into with the Russian Empire is really, it just kind of throws a wrench in this whole thing. Because it's like, is it a single country? Is it a continental block? Uh, like, you know, these kinds of descriptive definitions don't really help us very much in describing the, the likelihood of the success of a revolution. I think he's probably saying continental block and not country. I think he's just shorthand for the vast majority of countries, say in Western Europe, who he's primarily writing about. I guess what I'm hung up on uh, is the litmus test of Leninism as it existed in history and how it ended up is how I'm conceiving this argument. But I think reading it again uh, right now, and it focuses in on single country as like the issue I think that is, uh, that's not a strong argument. I can agree with that. The only response that I have is that, like, yeah, the Russian Empire was being treated as a single country in, you know, the main socialism of one country debate, uh, socialism in one country debate. And so I get the idea, you know, that Russia is fucking huge. But the fact that that even that ends up being too isolated you know, a former empire that subsumes a bunch of its former colonial subjects into it is sort of like a, a litmus test. Well, for, that, for that, that like, if you're talking about geographical area, you're talking about like that plus China plus yes. all the way down to Laos, right? Like, right. And Vietnam, right? Like at the maximum extent of expansion, uh, like half like, the world's surface, half the world's so, surface. So like, like all, you know, this, all, uh, this yeah. one country idea is like, mm. well, the, the, but the thing is that they, they, they were constantly playing off of each other and ended up splitting. Yeah. They, they never really had like a coherent, you well, know, but world you, communist you at, block. It wasn't coherent, but it also wasn't totally insignificant. You know, like the, 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 the exchanges between these countries existed. 
like, you know, the Vietnam War was financed by both the Soviet Union and China. It just, yeah, it just suggests that there's, there's sort of like underlying factors that are more significant than the geographical extent purely. Agreed. I, I think, think that the yeah. geographical, the single country is, is a problem in the specific context of 1917, not because the former Russian Empire was too small of a geographical area, but because its economic forces were so underdeveloped. That is the crucial issue. That's not saved well, by the Chinese Revolution because you have this a very similar problem in China. And then eventually, when they both start to build up their economic forces, they don't get along anymore. Yeah, there's still that problem of geopolitical isolation on top of you right. know the economic underdevelopment. Like geopolitical isolation is what makes the autarky hurt so bad. And it apparently isn't even isn't helped that much by a huge communist revolution popping off in your same continent. How big it is probably also affects like how the revolution like develops through time. You know, if you have a large section with efficient production, it'll probably, you know, extend geographically much more rapidly. One thing I'd just like to say is Puya said that science is not theories aren't based on on the data. Well what 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 are you talking about, Puya? Yeah, what kind no, of crazy like, is that? No, I mean not like, based on. I think it's, it's a counter empiricist point. You have to theorize I, things. I oh. know that. I'm yeah. being sarcastic. But uh, <laughs> Okay. No, okay. I was <laughs> I was a little bit confused. But anyway. Puya I can solve Puya's critique of the entire book with two things. One <laughs> If McNair put the word probably in a couple of more sentences. <laughs> and, and two, if McNair had said due to the material conditions. So those two phrases. And that'd be it. We wouldn't have these repeated arguments yeah. for half an hour. No, I, no, I no I'm joking. Different... I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. I'm taking the piss. Taking I think the piss. it's a different argument, though. <laughs> but but yeah, that think. would be true. That would be true. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I okay. was trained in psychology. Everything is based on empiricism. Oh, my God. Help. <laughs> Do, does anybody have anything else? Because Kuya Kick picked that off about this one. There's other stuff in this paragraph, too. I, I like the, the kind of cumulative nature of this, this section, trying to come up with the lessons of each international, regardless of our, our scrutiny of, of his argumentation. I think that's like a laudable goal for a socialist intellectual. If you don't want to get lost in history, but you don't want to ignore it either, you kind of have to be able to pop in and pop out with some cash value. What the fuck does this mean? Like, why, why is this important? And I mean, I'm not even sure McNair goes like far enough in abstracting in order to do that. But the section just sort of, it cut, does kind of surprise me that this ends up with the fight for a new international, considering everything that he's saying. I, I guess maybe I would want to focus on that last paragraph, because there's a lot, there's a lot about this that I kind of like that. I really, you know, agree with like common turn, you know, it wasn't the split from the social Democrats. It was this like nationalist focus, this, you know, fake democracy. It's worse than bourgeois democracy. And then, you know, being like a weeaboo for Russia. These are the things that, that really pervert the, the common turn. And then like A a what for Russia? Pardon me, uh, weeaboo is terminology <laughs> for an, an, an anime stand that gets really into ja- like Japanese like nationalism as a sort of like orient- orientalist sort of impulse. And, and you thought what percentage of the world's population would understand that phrase that you could just slip it in? Depends on the generation, because ev- like everyone my age knows what a fucking weeb is. 
A wee, but a weeaboo. It's the same, same yep. thing. <laughs> weeaboo is just yeah. weeb is just a short form. Yeah, just like a yeah, like a Rush Russia stan, you know, like a or a Russia boo. Yeah. What, what is a stan? Is it does stan <laughs> come from like Eminem song? Yes. yes. I've never, I've never yeah, heard that I, one. What does that mean? Sorry, I've been on Twitter for like, like yeah, a that's month. Just so Twitter that's Twitter language. Long. Yeah, so yeah. Stan is to be a nightmarishly obsessed fan. To be a stan, I stand what, for this. So what basically, like Sophie says, Sophie stands me. Essentially, that's what you're saying. Like, Wrong. Like <laughs> <laughs> She's standing anyone. She's standing right next to them. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's Kyle. staining. That's staining a different <laughs> stand. No, even no, I didn't. Not. Even I didn't go there. Wow. Oh, <laughs> Kyle. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's also worth noting that he brings up this idea of the problems of the chain of national revolutions, the idea of the Kalmatur as a fan club we talked about. But then this idea of the inability to think of international tasks except as either an immediate civil war, which called for a general staff, or making the National Communist Parties copy the Russians as a road to victory in a single country. And I think that is a, a really significant point that, like, because of this legacy, I think a lot of sort of uh, communists are always looking for that civil war opportunity and are always looking for the point at which the Russian mode of organization will be, in their view, useful. And what that means is that the international ignores a lot of other subject matter that may have been more of the, like, I mean, you know, you look at the, the first international and it was in a much more sort of chaotic geopolitical situation in the broad strokes. So I guess they could have been looking for this stuff as well. But, you know, they're, they're looking for those major points of rupture that are going to set off the chain of, of national revolutions, right? And, and maybe that is a room or like that is a space in which this idea of an international could be salvaged, right? Like to say, let's not focus all our energy on that subject. Let's focus on other areas of working class international struggle instead. And because historically, this, you know, internationalist strategy is associated with anarchism and the old and the old Bolsheviks during their most anarchist friendly point during like, you know, 1914 through 18. And McNair wants to steer clear of basically a lot of the strategic advice of the left tradition, you know, the the abstentionists and the, you know, the mass strikists, the quote, sub Bakuninists, you know, which is a a category that suffers from some great inflation in this book, but, but that internationalism, you know, he wants to bring into this kind of organizational organizational, maybe obsession is, is not a, uh, a nice way to put it, but you know, he wants to abstract that internationalism from the idea of like an immediate civil war and towards something more centrist. And this, you know, path to national revolution stuff is a uniquely centrist position. And I say centrist in the sense of, that tripartite thing I was talking about earlier, where you had the retreat on the right, uh, you know, sort of a retreat to capitalism, maybe Menshevism with that extra steps, you could say. On the left, you have that global civil war, the vibe check. And then in the middle, you have, nah, we're not going to give up on socialism, but we can't, you know, we can't actually have an international thing. So we're doing it right here. He wants to kind of get out of that, like, 
you know, left common turn and centrist common turn kind of debate without, without, you know, we're not even talking about the right. This is a debate between Trotsky and Stalin, basically, that he wants to get out of. Do you think by leaving out Bukharin and like the right opposition, that's why a lot of people who read this book kind of end up a version of neo-Bukharinism? I wonder about that. Like, I think, I think the Bukharinism comes from just like some kind of attempt to defend contemporary China at this point. I, I don't really know where that comes from other than like, but you know, you know what, that kind of make that, that makes some sense. It's not Trotsky. It's not, you know, Stalin, right? It's, it's a different position, but the, a lot of those people don't conceptualize Bukharin as retreating, which is, you know, wrong. Like Bukharin was, had a, a good historical materialist reason to basically say, well, we tried. <laughs> I also don't know if, I mean, neo-Picaranism is such a thing that only exists online, but I, yeah. I haven't really seen a lot of uh, neo I've seen like maybe like one neo-Picaranist really like kind of defend China subtly. I don't know if that's a common feature. Yeah, no, I think your intuition is right that, that it's an attempt to get out of this without leaving the common turn. Right. But yeah, they, <laughs> so they, they want to they basically still maintain the common turn more so than McNair does, even if McNair kind of like leaves the door cracked for it, you know, they want to really like still defend the Soviet Union. And if it's not, if according to this book, it's not Trotsky and not Stalin, that leaves one guy, you know, or one, you know, the right opposition in essence. The, the only thing I'd say, and I'm sure Derek would scream at me if he heard me saying this, is that I really think that the, ba- the backdoor, like, you know, Stalinism stuff is not exactly here. There is something to this book that really does want to leave the common turn and the third international behind. Like, I think there's a lot in this book that wants to do that. But, you know, yeah, there's there's this kind of, um, I guess, you know, if Derek were here, he would stress that there is this kind of ambiguity that's like left open. I guess it's not radically different from what you were just saying. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's not like a backdoor. It's a cracked window to Stalinism that people will throw a breakthrough and have jumped into for whatever reason. Yeah, I think uh, being a Bukharinist today is a lot harder position to maintain than it was in, uh, you know, when Bukharin was relevant, you know, when Bukharin was alive. For sure. Like, cool. He wrote some nice things about dialectics. Like, what else? You know, like... We don't live in a in a semi feudal country trying to do communism right now. So what's the point? I don't know. Well, the NEP I think is a lot hard. It's not really necessary today, like it was then. Yeah, I I can only really see this as a as a defense of like Chinese, you know, Leninism. the the only real like existing world governing Leninism right now. Or <laughs> or as a way to like to be a McNairist and still defend the Soviet Union because he doesn't he doesn't really bring up the car enough then so. You know, you could be like, oh, well, that's our guy then, because we still want the common turn to be cool. So either you're defending Dongism or you're defending the Soviet <sighs> Union, but you're, I don't think McNair really yeah. is trying to go for that. And I think people are mistaken. I, I think, that yeah, has, I think I agree more with Lexi than Derek on this. That would require some incredible mental gymnastics to come out of this and be like, <laughs> oh, we'll yeah, do it. but Bukharin, right? Like, I mean, think about how Bukharin went down. Right, so oh, much of the stuff that McNair is bringing up here is like just deep problems that cannot be brushed aside. Yeah, it's like a I don't know. It's like some kind of emo Kautskyism <laughs> with extra steps. Yeah, Bukharin. Yeah, got murked by Stalinists. 
like you know like there's just no he wrote this heartbreaking note to someone that you know he thought of as an old friend he had had a pet nickname for him koba why do you need me to die koba you know like why are you doing this and yeah and for some people for people to take that up as like a position is i think an expression of a death wish well it is an expression of death wish and also it's it's made so much more obvious that that it is what it is by how these people are usually the first to want to organize with Stalinists. Now, granted, I don't think Stalinists will ever, oh. at least in the United States, will ever have enough power to get anyone executed. They just will make your life miserable. And these people want to just jump right into that and make excuses for these, for these small bean Stalinists, you know? And like, let's, let's say we, we sort of accept the Bukharan position and you look at somebody like Deng, right? And how many times did he have to get thrown in jail by the centrists before he was finally able to execute a Bucardist program? You know, <laughs> like it's unbelievable that he was actually able to survive and get into power and execute on that idea. And then, I don't know, the results are not... I mean, yeah, I guess the results are defensible in some ways, but whew, oh boy, you look at that, like the, you look at it as a totality and it there, if you're, if you want to talk about like socialism as a path to liberation, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. There's very little liberation there. Well, and I guess it also leads to the next point that's like obvious, but we're not explicitly saying like, what is the point of, I mean, is the point of, of doing Dongism after Maoism the fact that like any form of Leninism is just untainable. So you just got to go to like controlled capitalism. Like well, why, why are we, why is this, why like are, are these people so attached to Leninism that they like will just glom onto this absolute failure? Like, I don't understand. Well, I, I, I think that, I think that the re the reasons that Dan gave for, for pursuing that course could like really sort of overlap with what Kautsky might have said, right? That he, he just basically said, look, we don't have enough technological innovation in this country in order to survive. We need to find ways in order to get the capitalist countries to develop our productive forces. And otherwise communism's not happening, right? Yeah, and, and the only thing I could say is that like the sort of Bukharanist tradition, I don't know, that well, on Swampside we read something by uh, Victor Serge, who, you know, was an anarchist that supported the Bolsheviks, but said, you know, when it wasn't even, it wasn't even new economic policy, but it was during war communism that I realized that when they're going to bring back markets, but without like the bourgeois form of liberty. And this is actually, it, this is kind of a strained definition, but markets without bourgeois liberty was what Victor Serge ended up calling totalitarianism. And that's how we conceptualize it. It's, you know, maybe not mm. best definition, but like if you just, you know, thinking about this is that like Bukharin might have wanted like a drawdown of the stranglehold of, of political power on intellectual life and that sort of thing. Certainly he would have benefited from it if it wasn't a consistent position. And I, I, I'm, I, I can't speak to that, but certainly Bukharinism, you know, basically is a, def is a defense of political Leninism of the political mm -hmm like one party state reigning over a form of capitalism. So we've, we've struggled now through this chapter for about, I think about eight hours of recording now. It might actually be 10. What? 
25 pages but oh. like <laughs> oh my God. Christ. there's one the thing next... that kind of repeatedly comes to me reading this stuff is like as somebody who played poker professionally and somebody who like doesn't play chess at all but follows some chess strategy videos and stuff how amazingly non-systemic you know the political decisions that were made by marxist or communist practitioners in the 20th century you know the key people how they use short-termism over long-term thinking and i think if there's anything that comes out of this chapter for me it's the failures of short-term thinking now maybe that's something endemic to human nature and politics i don't know but if there's anything we could learn from it is to think systemically any comments on that Certainly politics, you know, human, human nature in that's a little more of a complicated conversation. You know, there's a, there's a lot of configurations of human culture that, you know, can incorporate medium or long-term interests, but you know, the kind of instrumental reason that dominates in bourgeois society, including one of its most alienated spheres in the political you know world, I mean, how much it's, of it is a function of the of that kind of short termism that's inherent in capitalist production? It's hard. It's really hard to separate. You know, like I, I guess like the Bolsheviks were operating, you know, arguably outside of you know a fully bloomed like capitalist society, right? Like, so it's not purely a problem of being around, you know, wages or or stuff, full blown capitalist machinery, or I don't know, several modernization arguments that would say, oh, it's just modern life. It's it, but it's certainly something endemic to like politics as we know it. And, you know, like conservative and aristocratic and to a certain extent, liberal politicians are better about suspending short term interests for medium term interests or long term interests. I don't know. They don't seem as willing to sacrifice everything right now as as we are. What, what's that about? <laughs> we need some human sacrifices. Is that what we're saying? We need human sacrifices. Uh, there's the uh, Lord God on our side. There, uh, Andy Zaltzman uh, from the Bugle made a joke that says, well, you know, communists, they're a bit like sperm, aren't they? Or Stalinists, at least. You know, a million of them have to die for one of them to accomplish anything. Like, <laughs> I could well, say I as think... the uh, resident psych psychologist here that uh, I can 100% empirically prove human nature is uh, too short-sighted for communism to work. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Peterson. You're welcome. I thought you were in rehab. What the hell's going on? <laughs> oh, Tom, if only you knew how appropriate that joke or inappropriate that joke was. She said no, <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no. Uh, but I think the short-termism and like is kind of just like, or like the long-term nature of you know socialism. You know, it's kind of just part of the part of the deal. <laughs> like we can't promise like. Uh, returns immediately, like a liberal can. I'm thinking here about the French Revolution and how it didn't become truly radical until it became short-termist, right? Because of the threat of war. The threat of war, like, radicalized that situation so much. And that was being done by liberals, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's not uh, purely a, a communist thing. If the situation is sufficiently precarious, then short-termism can carry a lot of weight. 
but also also like bad strategy from not just like uh, short term and liberalism kind of stuff, but like this idea of you know going hell for leather for the Russian Revolution when all the rest of the left in Europe was in tatters. You know, it was like we want our one now, and then you come up with a theory for justifying it afterwards, as opposed to systemically thinking about mm -hmm. the problem. Uh, jokes well, about human nature aside, it's, it should be pointed out too that Lenin was kind of uh, inspired by the conspiracy of equals and Jacobism to a lesser degree. And so I think that's kind of instructive on his thinking. Yeah, it, it certainly had an influence on uh, on uh, Russian revolutionary culture, even if uh, he didn't necessarily come out of it, the most sort of like pure strain Blancism. Uh, no, yeah, I wouldn't he, think it was like you a... See there. I don't want to say he's like a Blancist or like a Neo-Jacobin. It just, it was influential. You yeah. Know? They built a monument to Robespierre, the Bolsheviks. Rips. Yeah. I guess, like, it's not to say that in these situations, there aren't people who are thinking long term. It's just they tend to get sidelined. They I, can't make an yeah. argument from urgency. Yeah. I mean, you look at Kautsky, you look at uh, Martov. The Menshevik opposition leader in the Soviet Union, early Soviet Union. There are a lot of people that articulate these critiques at the time when they need to be heard. You know, Anton Panikuk and Rosa Luxemburg and what have you. I mean, there are, you know, various reasons why some of them get sidelined. I mean, Rosa was straight up murdered. But yeah, when, when I was, you know, going through some like dumb internet farce of a farce of a farce of one of these splits, you know what I mean? Some, some aggrieved Leninist said, you know, well, people like Kautsky and Martov, they're always going to be outmaneuvered by people like Lenin. You know, they always have, and they always will. And it's like, all I said was that's an argument against communism though. Like if right. that's, that's what you think. That's like, don't ever bother doing anything you argument. Should, I mean, you should, I mean, they don't, but they didn't realize that when they were making it. You know, they thought they were like standing for their side, not arguing against it. These people don't realize that they're like reductio ad absurdum, like arguments, walking reasons not to be a communist in human form, <laughs> you know, making these points. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. They seem like counterexamples for good living. And you know what I mean? Is this why, or at least one reason why Lincoln is brought up so much as a like counterexample, right? What? Like that he was in a moment of intense political crisis and he did not take the most extreme position based on short termism, despite that crisis situation. Like, I mean, are I there examples like that that we could look at that maybe would say something more positive? I don't know. Lincoln is a complex case because on the one hand, like politically, it was perhaps more savvy to like try to work this out. But on the other hand, like what that meant and the context was that he was dragging his feet to end slavery, you know? So I don't know. That's kind of a fraud example, but I think what mm -hmm. your impulse is correct in that we should try to look for like, political examples, communists or not, of people who were looking towards like long-term strategy instead of short-term strategy and who succeeded, you know? I think the North, in Northern Ireland, the Republicans, I think are a very good example. They nearly have, the polls are now with their, their they've had a long-term strategy of 20, 30 years now. 
their long-term strategy. The polls in Northern Ireland now are in favor of United Ireland for the first time ever. That's awesome. You know, it, it, it's really amazing. Like seeing this happen, it, it's just like wow. <laughs> seeing a long-term strategy pay off uh, like this is is pretty incredible. Yeah, I want to do a I want to do a, a, a series on it, like as a part of the show. I think it'd be very interesting to go into it in depth. But it's like you know, all the splits. It's not like the Republican movement didn't have their splits as well. Mm -hmm. the, right. They have loads of them: IRA, the Provost, INLA, the goddamn real IRA. <laughs> you know, there's like it's like reading trot 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 splits. But the the core had long term strategy, and it's you know. Whatever we would say about the politics, just looking at it strategy-wise, it's certainly paying off massive dividends, I think. On this episode, you heard the team tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. <laughs>